uh, Nat and I get really hangry. Dude, I don't know if any of you get hangry. Um, it seems like when we get our hangriest, we'll be getting on, trying to get out of Charlestown, and we'll be like, we're going somewhere, and we'll go down Bunker Hill. Yeah, this is Nat and I hangry right here. Um, that's me with not showing the teeth. You want to see that? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, we'll start yelling at each other, yelling at other cars. Yelling at our children, yelling at the bumps in the road, everything is amping up our anger and frustration. We're yelling at one another. It's just not ever a pretty scene. Like, I, I mean, that's, that is her flashing with teeth. She gets it worse than I do for whatever reason. But, um, yeah, that's, that's us, hangry, hangry us. Like, do you, get, do you get more frustrated when you're tired or hungry or, like, pressed? What gets you the most? Lack of sleep gets you? Like sleeplessness? It all kind of goes together. All goes together. <laughs> it all feeds off one another. Um, Lana gets angry. Lana gets angry. Natalie gets angry so bad. Like, it is, it is really <laughs> funny, but not funny at all watching it happen uh, to she and I. So today, we're going to talk about uh, one of those kind of visceral issues that can kind of press on us a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about giving, and I'm really thankful that we get to record this stuff because even though there's not as many people here, I do want it to be a message that we can kind of go and point back to as a church. Uh, we're going to look at a woman who was so hungry, she was literally starving to death. And I've heard this story all my life, and I grew up in a church tradition where we had this felt board, and we had these little felt board things that you would put on the felt board. Like char- You had these characters you would put, so you would have Jesus with his white robe and blue sash and then looking very Swedish, and then you would have the disciples. And it seems like even this story would be one that I would have grown up with. You'd have a felt board piece of uh, Elijah, and then you would have this widow who we're going to see today in the story and her son. And uh, this woman, you know, in the, in the thing that I would have, she would look very, like have a beautiful face and be normal and everything would be okay. But in reality, this lady's starving to death. Like she's one, literally one meal from her death and from her son's death. And, uh, and so she's so hungry, but she doesn't find herself hangry. Like, we don't see her being hangry. We find her hungry, broken, about to die, but full of, full of faith and full of, like, a willingness to do uh, whatever God would have her do uh, through his grace. And so when we talk about giving, let me just give a couple of disclaimers. One, this is, becomes, like, a really visceral issue for most people. Most people... Uh, and here's what I've noticed living in Charlestown. Most people don't have problems like when a not-for-profit talks about giving, you know, but when a church talks about giving, they get very angry. Like I've had very reactive conversations with people in the community who, you know, all these churches, they just try to talk about money. And so even here, I've tried to avoid like talking about it. I don't like talking about giving. I don't like talking about money because we've seen it in church, especially abused We've seen money abused, and we've seen power abused in church. But also, I think what, the other reason I think we don't like talking about it in, in a church setting is because it makes us uncomfortable because we know the tug of war that goes on in our hearts um, between God and money. That we don't, I think we don't feel that in the same way. Like, we don't feel the tug of war, like, between a not-for-profit and our money in the same way that we feel, like, in church there's this tug between God and money. Uh, Jesus talked about that. Giving, every time we give, whether we give a dollar 
uh, or we give $100 or whatever. It's always a grace. The Bible refers to giving as a grace in the same way that worshiping is a grace or learning scripture is a grace. God's helping us do those things when we become more Christ-like. Those are graces. Giving is a grace, something that God is helping us grow in. And that's a process. And all of us grow in different areas. Um, You know, for some people, when I've seen them come to Jesus, they come really quickly and violently and so much of their life changes. For others of us, there's all these areas that it's a slow process becoming like Christ. And giving can be one of those. It takes us uh, sometimes a lot of grace to get where we've got to get. For Natalie and I, it's taken us a long time to get where we are in the way that we view giving. Um, But we want to live generously and in faith and God's helped us get there. But I'll tell you the truth. He still has a long way to go. Uh, frankly, like Natalie and, Natalie and I give 10% to this church, and then we give to a few other things as well. Not, but there are times that if I thought about if God said, well, I need you to give 15%, I would really bow up in the same way that if some other people, if God said, I need you to give 1% or 5% or whatever, they would bow up. It just makes us nervous, you know when God calls us to go a little bit past where we are. So giving's a grace. God's working on our hearts. I also think is a disclaimer that pastors don't love their sheep well uh, if they constantly talk about giving. I've served in churches where the pastors constantly talked about money. I've also served in churches and pastored where, we, where the pastor never talked about money, including myself. Like once a year I tried to talk about money and not every, you know, not all the time. And so I don't think it's shepherding our church well if we never talk about money. And I don't think it's shepherding our church well if we always talk about money. So with that said, let's look at this hungry, broke woman in uh, 1 Kings 17. It's on page 330. Just from last week, I know, I know uh, Mimi, you weren't here. Uh, we started talking last week about Elijah, uh, who's from Gilead. Uh, Scott, if you'll go to that map for me. So Elijah is from Gilead on the uh, northeast, across the river from the sort of central part of the nation of Israel. And in last week's story, he goes in, he crosses over the River Jordan, and he goes into sort of Israel proper to confront a king. And we don't know a lot about Elijah before of his part in, in 1 Kings 17. We know where he's from. He's from across the river. We know that his name means, my God is the Lord. And we know that he confronts this king, Ahab, who I'll give you some background on in just a second. And he says, by my word, it's not going to rain until I say so. And it could be years. He just says, open-ended, it's not going to rain for a long time. He makes this bold faith declaration to Ahab. And Ahab's a horrible king. The nation of Israel split um, at, the great, at the grandson or great-grandson of King David. And the southern part, down near Bethlehem, uh, remained somewhat faithful to God. But the northern part in Israel, up near Jezreel, Samaria, and on up, they became really, really unfaithful and, and stopped worshiping God and began to worship the Baals, uh, the Baal, which was the storm god of people from where it says Mediterranean Sea, just over there in Zarephath, they worship this god called Baal, who's the storm god. And Ahab was a huge Baal worshiper. He married this woman named Jezebel, and they were evil and did all kinds of evil, evil things. And so uh, Elijah confronts him and says, no more rain until I give the word. And then God uh, told him, he said, go back across the river to Tishbe, and I'm going to give you safety, I'm going to give you security, I'm going to get you out of Ahab so he doesn't kill you, and then I'm going to feed you and give you water, even in the midst of this drought. 
And so he obeys God's call in his life, even though it didn't make any common sense to say it's not going to rain and I'm going to hide you, and, and he did it. And so here's, that's where we are today. It's still not raining. A lot, uh, 1 Kings 17, verse 7. Here we go. Now, after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So he was living right here in Tishbe by the Kareth Brook. Uh, it's a little tiny river that sort of fed into the Jordan River, and that was where God was giving him water. So there was no rain in the land, and the river dried up. The brook dried up. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. Now that's a bold move to begin with because there is no water. They're running out of water in the city, I imagine, because it's not raining. And he asked her to serve him and bring him some water. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and he said, now bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and that we may die. Now where she is, is in the middle of Baal country. Zarephath is at the center of Baal worship and she is uh, living there. And she's not, we don't know much about this woman other than she's not a believer in God because she says, the Lord your God, as the Lord your God lives. So I, my personal opinion is she's not a believer in anything. She doesn't believe anything. She's so burned out by life. Her husband has died. Uh, she's given up faith. Uh, under normal circumstances, your husband dying in this day and age was almost a death sentence for most women who had uh, no children or children who were not of marrying age. And so she's lost her husband. She has lost faith. She has this son. And I think about my boys and the hopes and dreams that I have for my kids. And here she is, a mom who's got to provide for her kids and her kid in the middle of drought. And there's nothing. And she's watching as the water dries up and the food dries up and the land dries up and her hope for life dries up. She's watching her son's hope dry up. And just like we, you hope for Vera and you hope for your three children, like she's watching that hope for this little boy evaporate. And now she's about to make her last meal. And she says, I'm going to make this meal. We're in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, verses 9 through 12 right now, Joanne. She's going to make this last meal. And she says, I'm just going to lay down and die. We're going to die. There's nothing. We, we're going to die. There's nothing else. And then in the midst of being emaciated, and watching your little boy be emaciated and life ending and everything being over, a stranger asks her for the ingredients of her last meal. Hey, I know you've only got enough for like one more meal, but if I can have that, that would be great. And like, I, I think about what this woman must think in that moment. And you know that it's got to be bad because she entertains the idea. Hey, I've only got one more meal anyhow, and I'm going to die, so why not? Why not go ahead and give it? So let's read 13 through 16. We're going to read on to the end of this chapter, by the way. 13 through 16 uh, says this, And Elijah said to her, Now don't fear. By the way, that's the most commanded verse in the Bible. The thing that God most commands us in Scripture is to not be afraid. Now don't fear. Go and do as you've said, but first 
Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said and she and her, husband and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, but he spoke by Elijah. And we're going to pick up uh, the rest of it in just a moment because it's one of the craziest stories in the Bible. This is this woman's like go big or go home moment right here. A lot of faith. If I make you this meal, then I'm going to die. And he says, oh no, you're not going to die. You're going to be okay. You're going to make me that cake of bread. Then you're going to have some bread. And then it's your oil and flour, they're not going to run out. You are going to live. I mean, that in that moment, that's a lot of trust for a woman who by all accounts, seems to be either at least not a God worshiper, uh, maybe not a believer at all at this point. So she just has this conviction that goes past her capacity in that moment. Somebody told me the other day, I, I might have shared this last Sunday, a friend of mine told me the other day, he said, J.D., you get to this level where you just struggle to move past that in faith. And this woman gets to this point where to believe this much is going to be really uncomfortable, but that's what she does. She moves out to this realm of conviction, and she gives everything in the moment, and then God blesses her faith and her obedience and her generosity. The incredible thing about what she gives, God gives her more than she gave, and then God even gives her more than she needed because she believed him. God gave her more than she gave, and God gave her more than she needed. I love this quote. If you'll go to the next slide, it's a quote by uh, Paul Tripp. He says, God often asks us to offer what is left to do with it greater than our little minds could ever imagine. God often asks us to offer what is left to do with it greater than our little minds could ever imagine. Uh, a few weeks ago, the boys came into $100, and we encouraged them to give $10 back to put $10 in the offering basket. And we had a long talk about that and had a long, profound talk about how they didn't earn the $10. It was a gift and how God was also the one who actually gave them the money. And so God was letting them keep $90, but we need to learn as a family to be generous and so they, one of them put $10 in the offering box, and then the other one, of his own volition, put $15 in the offering box. And he wrote on there, he said, to God from the kid. And it was so sweet, and I think I even took a photo of it. But I'm not going to post it on social media as pastor. But man, it was sweet, because that's what he was doing. And, and the amazing thing is, in that moment, even out of giving that, God had given him more than he than he needed. The beautiful thing on the back end of that is God's going to take that little amount of money and do more with it than my, than my son could ask or imagine, right? And so the first thing that we see in this story from this woman, if you go to the next slide, Scott, is that in our lives, faith fuels giving. Faith, anytime we give, that has to flow out of faith. Biblical, good, godly giving, when we give online or text in, give or put in the basket, it ought to be burst out of this sense that God is at work, not this sense that we got to pay church's bills. You know, I, that's, a, that's a horrible motivation, um, and it's a sad motivation. Faith in God fuels our giving. Faith believes God can do more with my less. 
that God can take what I give, it may not seem like much or it may seem like a lot, and he can do infinitely more with it than I could even conceive of. Now, let's look at um, let's look at what happens after this, if we can. This is, I'm glad there's not many people here because this is honestly one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And when I was in seminary, we were I had to take a Hebrew class, and we had like 10 or 12 passages over the course of the semester that we had to translate from Hebrew into English just to see if the Bible, you know, how how we like the translation how it works. And this is one that we uh, had to translate. And I can tell you in Hebrew, the story is as weird. As it is in English. It's just a bizarre uh, moment, what happens here. It's, um, when you read it in Hebrew, it almost sounds mysterious and kind of spooky a little bit. Now, after this son of the woman, the mistress of the house, afterwards, this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. Here she is. She's giving, giving God everything, everything she had. And God has blessed her, and now they're not running out of food, and her son gets sick. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He expired. And she said to Elijah, What do you got against me, O man of God? You come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? So it would seem here that on some level she is believing a little more uh, because she's calling this guy a man of God, whereas before she just referred to him, she said, Oh, something about the Lord your God. She's referring to him here as a man of God. She says, are you just here to point out my sin? You're just here to point out that I'm such a sinner and a terrible person. And so now, because of my sin, my son should die for my sins. That's literally, that's what she says. Are you here so that when my son dies for my sins, you can sort of heap on the guilt? Heap it on. Terrible mom. And that's why your son's died. And, and she said to him, what have you against me? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. Verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the chamber, the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretches himself Upon the child, he lays over the child three times, and he cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now giving for her did not keep her from problems or pain. I meet a lot of people, you see this more in the South, you don't see this a lot here, who think, oh, well, if I give money to God, then I'm not going to get sick. Or if I give money to God, I'm going to be prosperous or whatever. Giving also didn't answer all of her, uh, didn't give her all the answers. It didn't give her perfect faith. Like her son dies and she can't make sense of it. I mean, other people who think, oh, well, if I give money to God, then I'm going to automatically mature. Like once I begin to give, that's the threshold of commitment to Jesus and boom, I'm going to be mature in my faith. And that didn't happen for her. So giving didn't take away her problems or her hurt. It didn't give her all the answers or perfect faith. But here's what it did do. It let her know where to go. 
it let her know exactly where to go. And she was supposed to go to Elijah in this thing. And so uh, faith fuels giving. And here's the next slide. If you'll go to the next one, Scott. Giving then conversely fuels faith. It becomes this cycle. When I give, it's because I believe. And then that compels more belief. Get generosity and giving and faith uh, fuels more faith. Because giving cuts the cord of my self-sovereignty. There, were 20, there was $20 laying at our house this morning. I think I put it in my pocket so my kids didn't take it. I didn't. There's a good chance they have it, actually. Uh, I was just laying right, on, right by the couch. And Owen picks the $20 up and he goes, I found $20. And he starts doing this dance of Jubilee that he does when there's money found, right? And he's like, this is mine. I was like, that's my $20. You know that, right? He's like, he's thinking in that moment about what he's going to do with that $20, There's something that comes with that money for him and for his father that thinks, if I have this money, then I am in control and I can do something with this. And it gives us this feeling of power or freedom or opportunity, right? And whenever we give, when we live generously, we cut the cord of that idea of I'm in control and I've got to be... I've got to be sovereign over this money. Giving, generosity cuts the cord of self-sovereignty and this woman, because she sort of has cut the cord of having to be in control of her life and trusted God, she sees God as a life giver. She sees him as the resurrection in addition to seeing him as provider, sustainer, and miracle worker. So giving, if you'll go to these slides, I want to just show you a couple things about giving uh, that I think are profoundly true, but I think most people don't, under, don't understand. One, giving is a faith issue and never a financial issue. I hate talking about money to church people, to Christians, because there's part of me that feels like it's a financial issue, but it's never a financial issue. Giving's a faith issue. It's always a faith issue. Second thing, um, giving is a reflection of a conviction. It's not a reaction to a cause. I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I've heard preachers that come in uh, or they'll talk with their churches and they're like, now we've got to build this building or we've got to give to this thing. And then they guilt trip people into this one thing, this cause. And we're going to talk about a cause here in a minute. But giving should never be a reaction to a cause. Giving should be more proactive. When we give to God, it should be a reflection of a conviction that we believe God is doing something and we want to invest his resources back in what he's doing. The third thing Giving always ends in blessing of others and God's provision for us. Giving always ends in God's blessing of others and provision for us. Think about with Elijah and the widow. She uh, blessed him and then God provided for her. She didn't starve to death. This is the pattern over and over in the Bible. When people give, whether it's um, Jesus talking about the, the widow who gave two coins, you know, in the, like God always seems to bless others and provide for the giver rather than it end in poverty. I've seen a lot of people who say, well, I could never give to God because if I do, then I'm just going to starve. <laughs> Listen, like God is looking out for us. He really is. And giving does not end in our own poverty. And then the other thing I want you to see from this story uh, is giving is a pathway. Three things happen when you give. Giving is a pathway to God's glory. When people give, God gets glory. Another thing that happens, giving becomes 
uh, a pathway to our intimacy. I, I'm cheap. We had a talk in our house this week. It was like, we cannot spend money. We've got to stop spending money if we're going to purchase the house that we're looking uh, to purchase here in the neighborhood. And so uh, there's just something in me that's cheap. When I give, when we as a family give, especially if we give uncomfortably, it deepens my intimacy with God. It doesn't drive a wedge between God and I. It actually brings God and I together. Because I'm having to rely on him and give to something that I believe is a kingdom cause. And then the third thing, it becomes a pathway to my maturity. I grow when I give. I learn that God is looking out for me. I know him more. And it causes me to become more like Jesus. Giving is not an end unto itself. I hate, like, I hate rules. Alicia and I were just talking about this. When I was a kid, we weren't allowed to play cards on Sunday. My grandma thought that was somehow a sin, God rest her soul. And uh, we weren't allowed to go to the movies on Sunday either. There were all these rules that weren't in the Bible. Get, and they were just kind of rules unto themselves. Well, why is that, Grandma? Because uh, we never were allowed to. Well, where did that come from? I don't know. I, I would never have told my grandma, show me that in the Bible. She would have grabbed the Bible and smacked me with it, more than likely. <laughs> but, um, but the giving, giving, like those rules, those rules were ends unto themselves. They didn't come from anywhere and they didn't lead to anything. Giving is not a rule unto itself. It's a pathway that allows other things to happen. We know God more. God gets glory and we grow in faith. So I think biblically, four things should mark our giving. And I'm going to show you these real quickly. If you go to the next slide. These are the four, I think, adjectives for how we should give. One, we should give regularly. I have a hard time saying that word, honestly. But... Um, 1 Corinthians 16.2 says this, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, who are going to give an offering, and he says, essentially, when you get paid, when you go to market and you come back, set aside what you're going to give so that you're ready to give. And so giving should be regular, it should be consistent. And it should happen at payday, biblically. I think that's the biblical precedent. And it shouldn't be leftovers. There, um, we don't, I, I think God's way is that we would take our whatever we make and we would set aside what we're going to give at the beginning and we know and then we live off of the rest. The second thing that should happen, giving should be, um, it should be generous. And so let me flip over to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 says this. It says, uh, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And so giving should be generous. I think, I think biblically the best way to give is to be a percentage giver. I can't, I can't back that up from the New Testament. Uh, I've heard a lot of people try to. But I, in the Old Testament, you gave 10% right off the top. And that was called the tithe. And then you gave other offerings. So at the end, a good, a truly like a good Jew was giving 20, maybe upwards of 25% of what they made. I don't see that in the New Testament, to be honest. I think Jesus gave 10%, but I can't, I can't definitively prove that to you. And so I would never say that, oh, well, you've got to give 10%. I, I can't do it. But I think the idea of generous giving marked out of a percentage is a biblical 
idea, percentage giving. The next thing that we see is that giving should be cheerful. In the Bible, it goes on after that verse. In verse 7, it says, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if Nat and I were given 30%, but I'm cursing the church and cursing God and cursing everybody as I do it, that's not helpful. So I think the, the precedent would be that we would be regular generous percentage givers who are giving cheerfully at a place that we've decided in our heart. So it may be like whenever Natalie and I adjust our giving, we go and we say, hey, here's an opportunity that's before us. Do we want to give to this? And if we can't agree on it, then we don't do it because giving should be cheerful. And uh, God loves a cheerful giver. It says in the fourth trait of, of Christian giving should be that it should be missional. It says in verse uh, 13 of the same chapter, is that right? Oh, excuse me. Let me flip over to 9.13. Yep, same place. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Talking about when they give the offering, these people that receive the offering are going to glorify God because of their submission flowing from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Specifically in this in this passage in Corinthians where we get most of the New Testament teaching about giving, there's a church in another area that's starving to death. They're having a famine, they're starving, and so all the churches are encouraged to take an offering to give to that. And they're going to take this offering and give it, and Paul says, because of your generosity, these people are going to end up praising God. And so giving should be kingdom causes, good things that glorify God. You guys are you guys modeled this in a thousand ways. Here goes the lights. Um, you modeled this in a thousand different ways. I remember one of the first conversations I had with you, Jamie, was just talking about your, and Dan Hillsman was the same way, your love for good causes. Not necessarily, uh, everything doesn't have to run through the church. There are some things that are just good and glorify God that obviously happen outside of the church. Every year, Carson at Christmas raises 10,000 presents. Well, that's not a church thing that's giving out these 10,000 gifts, but that's a good cause. Like, that's a great cause. Families should have enough at the holidays, in my opinion. And so whether we give to this church, a kingdom cause, we want to make sure we're giving so that people will end up coming to faith, whether it's our church or not. These are not dues. And as a church, we try to invest our resources in kingdom causes and be a kingdom hotspot worth giving to. You know, I've told the story uh, recently about the family that doesn't attend our church who gave an offering to our church here in the community and asked why they did it. And they said, because we see how your church gives back to the community and you're making our community better and we want to be part of that. Like, I'm, I love that. I think that is a good evidence of New Testament giving, biblical giving as a church. So I want to tell you about an opportunity that's before us and you're going to help me spread the word on this through the rest of our church in the next few weeks. If you'll go to that next slide for me, Scott, that'd be great. So the basketball team, Coach uh, Hugh Coleman's the coach of the three guys' basketball teams at the high school. He came and shared during our dialogue series at the end of June. And I asked him at the end, I said, how can our church be a blessing to you and the team? And he said, one thing that would be really helpful is if we could come here on Sundays and then have practice in the Kent after, after service. He said, that'll meet five, at least four needs for us, maybe five. He said, one, most of my guys have never been in the church, really, and they need, they need to hear the Bible and, and, be, and see the faith lived out. Two, he said, a lot of my guys get off schedule on Saturday and Sunday, and I have to reprogram them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 
only to sort of Groundhog Day and have it happen again on the weekend, right? He said, three, most of my guys, a lot of my guys don't get a good meal on the weekend. And he said, what would it look like if the church helped feed these guys in between worship and then the practice? And then the fourth thing, he said, it would, um, it would provide just skill development. An extra couple of hours of practice during the weekend would be huge for them. And then the thing that doesn't provide them but provides us is a chance to serve and be a blessing to people that we would not normally otherwise get a chance to. And so we've talked with the public school. I don't think I put a slide up for this, Scott. I, I know I didn't, but I think I put it in the bulletin. Um, to do what he's asking, the cost for the school is going to be $409.52 a week or $5,733.28 through December. And then we're going to feed them lunch, which will be about $250 a week, give or take, which will work out to $3,500 to the end of the year. And then once a month, we're going to feed them potluck, like an organized strategic potluck, okay? And so this is the thing that God's put before us as a church. This was not in our budget. And so I'm going to challenge our church starting next week, August 18th, and then September 1st, 8th, and 15th. We won't meet the 25th. I'm going to challenge our church, if we go to the last slide, that for one month, we would all give 1% more. Whatever you give, I would encourage you to pray about giving 1% more. Um, so you might give right now a cash amount or a, an amount that's not a percentage. I want to encourage you to give, figure out what that is and give 1% more at least. You may give a percentage amount, give 1% more. Our family's trying to figure out what this is going to look like. Uh, and if God leads you to do more than 1% more, it's fantastic. But I want to challenge our church to give 1% or more generously, joyfully, cheerfully, uh, missionally, prayerfully over the next month. And um, these guys are going to start, the, the tentative plan is for them to start coming here September 15th. Uh, and we're going to run it for a month and see how it works because you can't mandate them to be here and it's not even to try out time uh, yet. But man, what an opportunity for us and what an opportunity for these guys. And so um, it's a big, this is like our go big or go home moment. Somebody asked me the other day, I was talking on the phone, they were like, are you nervous about this? I was like, yes, I'm nervous about this. We are inviting 45 teenage guys into our tiny church uh, and we've never done this before. But what, what, what are, why wouldn't we do it? And that's what I keep coming back to, like this widow who's about to starve to death. She's either going to starve to death or eat one meal and starve to death. And she takes a risk following God. For us as a church, why wouldn't we? We have the resources. God has blessed our church. Whether our church gives to this or not, we still have the resources. I just think it's an opportunity that we all need to get behind. And God's put it before us. So... Why do we do this? Because God has been crazy generous with us. Uh, God lets me keep 90% of what I give every month. I, like I, I, Natalie and I, we give a little more than 10%. God lets us keep 90%. Even more than that, God has resourced us with everything that we would ever need or even think to need. Somebody asked us the other day, how are you guys buying a house in Charlestown? And I'll be honest, we've soft played that. And uh, we were talking about this yesterday. And she said, um, you know, and, and I've done the same thing. She said, oh, we were able to do it because of this program and da-da-da. And she's like, I am repenting of answering the question like that. She said, when, when people ask me that, we need to start saying, because we prayed for three years that God would provide us a house. 
And he's generous, and he chose to do it. And it is a miracle. But man, that's how God operates. He operates in our lives by generous miracles. And so when we give, we're not giving to a chintzy, cheap God or a mean God or a taskmaster or like this mean banker who's coming to collect debts. We're giving to a God who's already given generously to us more than we could ask or imagine. And so I, wanna, I want us to pray that our church will be crazy generous. And I'm even praying for people who've already moved because three families have moved out of our church to other places. I'm even praying that they'll come back and give us because God's a generous God. And, uh, and I think he wants to see incredible things happen. I got a call the other day from somebody who said, hey, that basketball thing your church is thinking about doing? I said, yep. He said, I've got X amount of resources that we want to give to it. They have no connection to our church. Uh, I'll tell you, in a, in a month, I'm going to tell you how much people from outside are giving to this. But I think first we need to start with inside. Uh, but man, like when God calls us to do something and we take a step of faith, he always, he always blesses it. Let me pray for us.